In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies. It is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet Following the truth wherever it leads Exposing evil and corruption And the secret machinations of powerful elites Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality Coming to you from the Great White North And his studio beneath the stairs Here's Richard And welcome once again to another edition of Strange Planet. And if you'd like to dig a little deeper into Strange Planet, I highly recommend you check out my premium subscription service. Just go to strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm. The link is right there in the episode description, strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm. And uh, there are three monthly packages, if you will, to choose from. Choose the one that's right for you. You gain access to commercial-free listening. You get bonus episodes. You get a subscription to my free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum, discounts on Strange Planet merchandise, and more. Strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm. All right. You came on a good night, folks. It's kind of an unpacking party. Look what I got in the mail the other day. Took four people just to bring it up the driveway. 
Does it even fit on the camera? (laughs) Some fun tonight. The backstage, do I have the right? Yeah, there it is. The backstage story of how the Beatles rocked America, the historic tours of 1964 through 1966. And uh, volume one, of course, is 1964. The inaugural uh, voyage, volume two, is covering 65 and 66. And uh, we're going to talk about volume one. Oh, giving my biceps a workout here. This is it, volume one. It goes city by city by city. I mean, this is just a must-have for uh, Beatle fans, and this is gonna this is gonna be a family heirloom. All right, because I schooled my uh, my twin boys on uh, proper rock and roll, and uh, they're Beatle fans as well. Took them to see Ringo Starr at uh, Massey Hall um, several months ago. So they're going to be fighting over this <laughs> when I'm six feet under. Anyway, it's a great pleasure uh, to welcome Chuck Gunderson, who put this incredible two-volume set together. He was raised in San Diego, California. Of course, the site of the uh, Beatles, uh, well, I guess that was like their eighth stop on the uh, the 65 North American tour. A little too young for uh, Chuck to attend the show, but he was uh, uh, able to enjoy his older siblings' Uh, Beatles albums, and uh, that, of course, uh, created for him a lifelong love for the band. He's worked in the outdoor advertising industry most of his life through his true passion is uh, history. He obtained his Bachelor of Arts at San Diego State University and a master's at the University of San Diego, both in the field of history. And uh, he has, again, Uh, published this incredible two-volume series. Some fun tonight, the backstage story of how the Beatles rocked America, the historic tours of 64 through 66. Chuck Gunderson, welcome to Strange Planet. How are you? Hey, Richard. Thank you so much for having me on. It's it's an absolute pleasure. How long did it take you to put these uh, these two books together? (laughs) Longer than I thought. Uh, You would think us being in the social media age that there would be stuff all over to find but i really had to dig deep to find everything i put in the book but all in told it was about eight years of research and publication and putting it together so i mean and how do you go like you go city by city uh for the three the three um north american tours do you do you actually have to then physically travel to you know, um, San Diego and, and Toronto and, and, um, New York to Shea stadium. Uh, I mean, to, 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 to find this archival material. Some cities I did travel to luckily the, the Beatle community is far and wide and I've, I've been in it for many decades. So I know people from all over the world. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, relying on their information, um, I actually, uh, had some people research some things for me in different cities that I couldn't get to. Um, but it was interesting in the research that things that I thought would be in that city in terms of photographs and things like that, they would say, yes, Chuck, we have the photos. But then when I'd get them, they'd be for a different city. <laughs> so I don't know why they had them in their archives, but they did. But one of the keys in, in producing the book was my mantra of following the Beatles' clothes from city to city. You kind of could tell where they were at a particular time. So that's kind of one of the things I did. Interesting. Interesting. Um, and do you, when you're putting a project of this magnitude together, and it's so, again, it's just, there's so beautiful and it's so impressive. 
uh, do you do you have to get sort of the imprimatur of the the surviving Beatles or you know? Luckily, when I did the research, Richard, uh, you know, the book was published uh, in 2014, and I was doing research in the late 90s and early 2000s, and up through publication. And fortunately, many of the people that were um, in the tour were still alive, and I could interview them. Some of the inner circle, uh, I didn't get a chance to obviously interview any of the surviving Beatles. But as close enough as I could get to them, the press officers, the tour manager, the uh, people that work for General Artist Corporation, certain journalists, photographers who are who are luckily still around to give me that information. So um, we're going to so you're going to we're going to talk about the 1964, the first tour, and then maybe on subsequent uh, episodes, we'll talk about 65 and 66. But for 64 and um kind of disabuse us of the notion that the the Beatles, you know, when they, when they washed ashore in early 64 and, you know, did the Ed Sullivan show that that was sort of the beginning of the 64 tour. It wasn't right. Right. Yeah. Most historians call the visit in February, the first visit, which was about a two and a half week visit where they did, you know, the Ed Sullivan appearances, they did one in New York City, they taped one that later that day on the 9th in New York City, and then they flew down to Miami Beach, uh, did another Ed Sullivan taping, and in between that, they played their first American show at the Washington Coliseum, and then they also played two shows at Carnegie Hall, and then uh, around uh, mid-February, they took off back to London, and then they came back for a full-scale assault of the U.S., on uh, mid-August, starting in San Francisco on, on August 19th, 1964 at the Cal Palace. And during that stretch, they did 32 shows in 33 days. Oh, my gosh. 32 shows, couple, what, two dozen cities in 33 days. You know, obviously, you know, they had little tiny amplifiers and they didn't have the the the, the stage production you know like a a, a a who concert with a symphony orchestra behind them and all that stuff but logistically i mean how do you how do you perform 32 shows in 25 cities in in 33 days it's pretty amazing i sometimes i think their their manager brian epstein thought that the us was about the size of the uk sometimes because if you look at the tour, it's just really haphazard. I mean, they start in San Francisco, they fly down to Vegas, they go back up to Vancouver, Seattle, fly back down to LA, you know, they're just crisscrossing all over the place. And as a matter of fact, uh, by the time they did from London back to London, they they traveled about 26,000 miles uh, across the US doing these shows. And, and you're right, it was, it was very archaic uh, at the time. You know, rock and roll was, especially rock and roll, large scale touring was still in its infancy. Uh, when Elvis was big in the mid fifties, um, you know, he had played some of the venues the Beatles had performed at, but he was still doing high school gymnasiums. The Beatles kind of broke the barrier and their manager, Brian Epstein, and bringing them to America and exposing them to America's youth, teenagers at the time, uh, by playing these venues, and some of them were extremely large for a really early period in rock history when they were kind of inventing it. They were starting the blueprint of this whole thing. Give me a sense of um, 
because as you see, the attendance was varied. Uh, I think in New York, they played before like a very intimate setting, almost 4,000 people. And then a place like Baltimore, you had like almost a football size crowd, like 30,000 people. Uh, talk to me about, um, you know, why, why such a variance in, in, um, in attendance? So in the UK, the Beatles had only performed in a venue as large as about 8,000 people. They were mostly playing theaters, things like that, held about 2,500. They went down to Australia in June. The most they played to was 10,000. When Brian Epstein received the tour planning sheet from General Artists Corporation, they were a New York talent agency that kind of put the, the tour together. He had all these selections to make. And it's interesting because I have the original document and it's presented in the book with Brian's writings and check marks and tea stains and all of that as he was kind of pouring over these venues. And it's interesting that some really large venues were offered to the Beatles in 1964. Venues like Tiger Stadium that held 50,000 people, uh, the LA Coliseum, which held 80,000 people, just gigantic venues. And, and, and for such an infant, infant archaic time in rock touring history, and to Brian Epstein's credit, he didn't kind of fall for it in terms of I'm going to get the biggest venue and I'm going to fill this up. He was pretty astute in terms of him picking smaller venues during that first tour of the U.S., that big, massive tour, 32 shows in 33 days. He picked such things as like the the Hollywood Bowl, the Cow Palace, Denver's Red Rocks, you know, Cincinnati Gardens. Um, people weren't ready for the Beatles to fill stadiums. That would be the next year when they did that triumphant uh, stadium visit in New York Shea Stadium where they completely sold it out. Brian did pick a few larger venues. He picked uh, selected Kansas City, which, you know, municipal stadium held about 45,000 at the time and only about, about 25,000 attended that concert. The Gator Bowl in Jacksonville, which held about 60, only 32,000 attended. And there was a hurricane as well during that time. <laughs> so um, he kind of primed the pump for next year when they came back in 65. But even then, those were the biggest crowds the Beatles had ever seen in, in their career up to that point. When they hit that first show, at the Cow Palace, there was, you know, 17,000 people there. It was the biggest thing they'd ever seen. So it was quite amazing for them to go through America and be in these, these, these venues that held thousands and thousands of people that were finally exposed to the Beatles music and actually seeing them in person. We're going to take a quick time out, come back and discuss more of the backstage story of how the Beatles rocked America the historic tour of 1964. Some fun tonight with Chuck Gunderson. Back with more in a moment. Elevate your summer with Osea's best-selling body care set. It's everything you need for radiant summer skin on the go. Featuring travel sizes of Osea's clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral skincare, like their best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Right now, you can get the Best Sellers Body Care Set, a $78 value, 33% off. And use code SUMMER to save an additional 10%. That's an additional 10% off at OCEAMalibu.com code SUMMER. It's time to redefine reality. reality. 
This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. All right, I'm going to let folks have another look at it here because it's just so beautiful. Some fun tonight. And uh, we're talking about the first tour, 1964, kicked off in August of 64 in San Francisco's Cow Palace. Um, what was the typical set um, back in those days? I mean, now we're used to like Bruce Springsteen, three hours, and even Paul McCartney at the age of 80 will like clock in at, you know, over two hours. What were the Beatles doing in terms of set length back then? Well, it was very different from what it is now. The Beatles came with a 12-song set, and it was never changed during that uh, tour, that first tour of 64. There were a couple cities where it was altered just a, a hair, but not by much. Um, and so they basically did that set every night when they came into America, and it would take between 30 and 35 minutes so basically what you would do if you went to a Beatles concert, you'd have about a two hour, two and a half hour experience. You'd have about four opening acts that you um, went and saw. Now, they had some great opening acts. So their first tour, the Jackie DeShannon, the Exciters, the Righteous Brothers were part of the tour for a while. Frogman Henry, um, Bill Black Combo. So you sat through these acts and the acts couldn't have felt very good because the whole time, you know, the audience is screaming, well, you know, we want the Beatles to come on. And so finally, at the end, when everybody was whipped up into a frenzy, they would come on and then it was just a bedlam of screams the, the entire time. And so that would last 30, 35 minutes. The Beatles would do their set. Not much talking in between songs, a little bit. And then they would uh, usually finish and uh, Long Tall Sally would be their closing number. Uh, for the American tour in 64, and they would leave, get get to the next city. Hard to imagine um, now, but the nerves that they had, you know, when they come to America, of course, you know, they had to succeed in America. They wanted to succeed. They wanted to make sure they had a number one hit before they came and all of that. But they were nervous. And uh, George Harrison had come the year prior in 63, I think, was he visiting a relative in Illinois or Ohio? Yeah, and his sister lived in uh, Benton, Illinois. And there's if you go there today, there's actually a little stat, uh, kind of a sign that that commemorates his visit. He bought a, a Rickenbacker guitar there. I think the 425 Rickenbacker uh, red guitar, but he had it spray painted black. And if you go online onto Google, Google George Harrison in New York City, 1963. There's a picture of him on top of the Empire State Building and uh, around the Statue of Liberty site. And he almost kind of looks like an alien, you know, <laughs> like people are looking at him. Going, Who is this guy with his yes. suit on and his weird haircut? You know, so, yeah, he was the first visit Beatle to visit America in 63. And it, if I if. If I'm remembering correctly, based on what I've read, I mean, he was perhaps the most nervous after like coming over in 63, the year before the tour and thinking, gee, I don't know if this is going to work. The, I don't know the crossover. What was he? What were they nervous about? I think the Beatles were interested in progressing. They didn't want to stay where they were. That was the hallmark of their career. They weren't they weren't satisfied with the formula that they had produced. They were always interested in new sounds new techniques. So, of course, touring, I mean, they started as a live band. They did not start in a sterile recording studio. They they stood on the stages and all the little clubs and outlying places in Liverpool. Of course, they did their Hamburg stint. 
along the reaper bond. Um, so they are always interested in progressing. They wanted, obviously, to get to America. You know, no British act had really took hold in America, so they wanted to do it. Uh, they wanted to play some of these historic venues. I mean, I, I really got to think what they must have been thinking when they when they stood on the stage at the Hollywood Bowl. I mean, four Liverpool kids from England, the north of England, and they're standing on one of America's most prestigious stages in Hollywood, California, you know, playing to all these tan, good-looking, you know, teenagers uh, who are there to see him and screaming their lungs out for them. I, I just would have loved to have heard what they were thinking about that when they encountered that. So I guess uh, this was more of a, an issue in subsequent tours when they were playing larger venues and they had, you know, they were so popular, they had to scramble to find the biggest venue possible. And, you know, this was in the days before the the big wall of sound and the big amplifiers. So basically what they were, as I understand it, they would be miking their little tiny amplifier off the stage and then running that through the the PA system. I mean, I love the Beatles, but I have I, I, I think that if I went to see them live in 64, 65, I might have been disappointed. <laughs> yeah, you, there was just so much screaming. Of course, all the brownie cameras flash bulbing off. Uh, but yeah, they basically hooked up the sound from the amplifiers through either the outdoor venue or the indoor venue that they were playing. And so it was coming through those speakers. And so you got to think of places like Maple Leaf Gardens that had been around for a long time. It was ancient back then. And so you can imagine what the sound system was like. But we we actually have a few soundboard recordings that survive that sound pretty good. I mean, if you take the screaming out and you also have to remember, Richard, that there was the technology was not invented yet for the Beatles to have like fullback or feedback speakers on stage. So they couldn't even hear what they were singing. But because of their experience on the stage in Liverpool, Hamburg, all throughout the UK, they just knew how to do it. I mean, I remember watching Ringo in an interview and he would say, you know, how would you drum to that? You know, how would you keep the beat? How would you stay in the, the pocket, as they call it? And he'd say, I would just watch them wiggle their ass or their butt or something <laughs> on stage. And I kind of knew where they were at in the song and did the fill. So, yeah, it was just, I mean, I think they're running everything through like 100 watt amps. You know, they have the, 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 the Vox AC 30 amps and they 65, they moved up to the 100 watt amp, you know. And the wattage in today's concert, you go see Taylor Swift or it's just astronomically more than when the Beatles were on stage performing in America. Didn't make a lot of money uh, by today, even by today's standards. I mean, uh, what do they get? Uh, like $50,000 minimum? Uh, yeah, show. so the stars of the day, uh, let's talk about like Frank Sinatra, Liza Minnelli, Judy Garland. They were getting about ten dollars to $15,000 a gig plus a percentage of the gate. And Brian Epstein, their manager, told Tony, Bar Tony Barrow, their press officer, he said, when we're going to come back to America in August, you know, and they were negotiating the contracts in the spring of 64, he said, I'm going to ask for more than what the huge American stars were getting. And so he was asking for guarantees of $25,000, $30,000 per venue, plus a percentage of the gate. So it was quite a bit of money. But at the same time, ticket prices were surprisingly low. The average 
ticket price during the 1964 American tour was about $4.50. And you sent your money order or your check to your local radio station or went to the physical box office at the venue and got your ticket. That's how it was back then. Do you hear that, Taylor Swift? $4.50. So what did they clear uh, at the end of the tour? A million dollars? Yeah, so they cleared over a million dollars on the tour. And what's interesting is the IRS came after them and, and claimed that they were an American act. Uh, and they extract, they actually extracted the money up from them of about $300,000. And what's interesting is that the Beatles company, which was, you know, Brian's company, which was, uh, you know, um, NEMS, he, uh, they fought it out and actually fought the IRS and they're one of the few people to beat the IRS. They, they bought, they beat them and they got back all their money plus interest. So kudos to the Beatles for beating the IRS. Hard to do. And, uh, and nigh on impossible. Um, so Paul, Sir Paul McCartney uh, came out with this uh, wonderful collection of photos called Eye of the Storm. That was from the 64 tour. Um any of the, uh, I'm assuming you've seen, you know, the many of the photos, uh, any photos in there that, that jump out at you that kind of, I don't know, dovetail with some of the photos in the book? Like, okay, I, that photo I recognize that was from Philadelphia or, or wherever. Absolutely. Um, obviously seeing the photos from the lens of a beetle. Mm. is such a different perspective because they're shooting the opposite of what the other people are photographing and kind of kind of witnessing America through the lens of their Pentax cameras that they brought. Um, and they brought them on every tour. Um, I love to see these photos. And, and in my book, I mean, actually trying to find the photos from each stop was nearly impossible. And luckily I uncovered hundreds of photos that had never been published before because when a newspaper sent a photojournalist out to cover the show, they would shoot, you know, 20, 30 pictures. I mean, film was expensive. Let's face it. They had to process it and bring it back. They brought it to the photo desk at the newspaper. They picked one or two photos and they just threw the other ones away. So luckily, some of them were found in dusty newspaper vaults, our university archives, library archives all over the country. Uh, found an amazing array of photos up in Toronto at, at the Royal Museum up there. Their oh. visits to Maple Leaf Gardens, which is in fact the most graced stage the Beatles ever performed in North America, was Maple Leaf Gardens. They did all three years, and they did two shows each, so they graced that stage six times. Right, and uh, I think they stayed at the Prince Edward Hotel there, which is uh, kind of a landmark in Toronto. Um I wish I knew which room I'd love to stay in. The, yeah. Yeah. King Edward the hotel. The King Edward. Still sorry, there, still the there today. Yeah, not the Prince Edward, the King Edward. That's right. Yeah, the King Edward hotel Sheraton and uh, still there today. And uh, yeah, they stayed there all three years. Um, do you, is there any way of sort of gauging which performance in that 64 tour was kind of the, the, the pinnacle for them? If I had to pick a performance, I mean, there's obviously several. Um, I would have to say the Hollywood Bowl was just incredible. Again, being on stage in Hollywood, California, and as four Liverpudlians must have been a special moment for them. Um, another one I think would be very interesting, and it's a venue I just visited for the first time just two weeks ago, and that's Denver's Red Rocks. 
Um, Red Rocks is an interesting venue because it's a natural amphitheater carved in out of the kind of the little hill there. And there's these gigantic monolithic stone rocks that kind of grace each side of the stage. And they must have just looked at that and thought, wow, this is crazy. They did a visit to Las Vegas, which was very interesting because Las Vegas was not the town that we know today. It only had 100,000 people back then. By far the smallest population venue uh, the Beatles ever played in 1964 by probably 500,000 people. I think the next smallest city was Jacksonville. But uh, Vegas had 100,000 people. So you wonder, well, why did they even go to Las Vegas? And the simple answer is, is that Brian Epstein and the Beatles wanted to see Las Vegas. Did they see Las Vegas the way they wanted to see it? Did they get lost in the casino? Did they lay by the pool? No. All they saw was the airport, their hotel room, and the performing venue that they performed in, which was the Las Vegas Convention Center, which is no longer around. Chuck, another time out, back with more of the Beatles' 64 North American tour. Back with uh, more right here on Strange Planet. As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? You're listening to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Chuck Gunderson stays with us and we're talking about the uh, Beatles 64 North American tour. And uh, that is volume one of an incredible two volume collection. Whoa, knocked myself in the head. Some fun tonight. There it is. Look at the size of that. My Lord, that's not, that's a coffee table book, but you could actually make a coffee table out of the book. That's just strap four legs on there. Um, Looking at some of these amazing photos, um, security were there any close calls during that 64 tour fans got a little too rowdy a little too close yeah there were obviously breaches of the stage where fans actually got on stage but every city they went you know at the same time richard there was an american presidential election happening between barry goldwater and lyndon b johnson the current president And uh, people that I interviewed along the way for the book told me that the Beatles had more security than any of these presidential candidates that came through town because they were kind of bookending these, you know, the Beatles would be there one night and then Johnson would be there the next night or something. You know, they said, oh, there's way more security. But again, it was so primitive. I mean, back then there were no like backstage passes or, you know, lots of security. And of course, they learned a lot of things on the 1964 tour. It wasn't until the 1965 tour that they even issued a pass, kind of a white security pass to those that were intimately involved with the tour, like the, you know, the photojournalists or the, you know, the opening acts or something like that. And so, yeah, they didn't know who was backstage. There were several cities where they had to send in, you know, uh, bomb sniffing dogs. Um, There were threats made, you know, Denver, there was a threat made that they were gonna explode Red Rocks. Um, So yeah, I mean, it it was daunting for them. Even the FBI, when they arrived in, in San Francisco that first day on the 18th of August, they started a file on them. They followed them around. 
because they thought that subversive entities or players in that area would kind of hook on to the Beatles as their kind of their 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 shield or their front front men to kind of create subversive acts and kind of whip these frenzied crowds and and do their thing. So yeah, even the FBI was concerned of this hysteria that was kind of following wherever they went. Oh, they had a kind of a jump start and um, I would just pad that file, I guess, more and more starting in 71 when Lennon moved to America. Um, there is also a picture of the Beatles, not a lot, you know, 33, uh, 31 dates in, in, uh, in 33 days, not a lot of time to lounge by the pool, but they did a little bit of that. There's a picture of them like fishing. Was that in Miami or where was that? Yeah, I was actually fishing out of their secure hotel room at oh. uh, the Seattle Edgewater Hotel, which is still there today. You can actually go stay in the Beatles suite. It's a little bit reconfigured. But yeah, you can take your fishing pole there. You can throw your line out into the into the ocean and maybe catch something. But that was basically a photo opportunity for the Beatles. Um, they just were not able to get out anywhere in any of the cities they were in cities that they would have loved to explore. They were in New Orleans. I mean, one of the centers of music that they they loved and grew up with, uh, you know, all kind of different, Memphis in 1966. And they just never were able to get out and, and do any of this. It wasn't until after their post-Beatle career that they were able to kind of go out and visit America. I know that Paul and his current wife, Nancy, at one time, a few years back, rented a car and traveled all the way through America on Route, historic Route 66. So, yeah, they the Beatles, as a foursome, when they toured America those three summers and the first visit in February, they only stood as a foursome on North American soil for a total of 90 days. That's it. Wow. Um, you know, there's that classic, uh, one of my favorite uh quips from a Beatle a reporter asks John Lennon, how did you find America? And he said, I turned left at Greenland, but how did they find America? I mean, was there culture shock when they, when they, you know, they did the tour beginning in August of 64 and they saw maybe, you know, some remnants of Jim Crow and all of that. Yeah. So they, uh, then when they came in February in February of 1964, they, you know, obviously saw New York, the big apple. I mean, wow, you've really made it, you know, it was, must've been just a, huge rush for them um but also i think when they went down to miami i think they saw their first signs of like jim crow in america and segregation and things like that and of course that would be addressed on the tour when they played certain venues in the south especially the gator bowl in jacksonville um because they were not ushered around hotels through main lobbies and things like that they actually were ushered behind you know the back corridors you know where the real people worked i actually uh was at one of the hotels they stayed at in denver just a few weeks ago at the brown palace which is still there still has the beetle suite although it's a bit reconfigured but i had the hotel historian take me on the route the beetles went into the hotel you know through the freight elevator and up up through the back corridors and things like that and so i think they really kind of saw that exposure and to them it was completely foreign uh living in the uk they didn't have any problem with segregation and of course there's racism everywhere we go but i mean they they performed with black artists all you know in liverpool they 
didn't have any problem with them. And they, and they even said on tour, like, we're not going to play to segregated venues. Um, we, we would rather, John Lennon said, we would rather lose our appearance money than perform at a segregated venue. And so they were a group that in their performance or tour writer, which today's writers are 30 pages, you know, artists want everything in the world. The Beatles writer was a page and a quarter. They wanted clean towels, four cots, a portable TV set, two cases of cold soda, mirrors, that type of thing. But one important clause that they had in their in their rider was that artists will not be required to perform before a segregated audience, which in 1964 and when this tour was planned in the spring of 1964, Jim Crow laws were still in effect. Uh, President Johnson did not sign the civil rights bill into action, into law until July of 1964. So they had already committed, the promoters had already committed that they were going to provide integrated venues. And as soon as the Beatles got on tour and in Las Vegas, their second stop, they were asked, will you perform at the Gator Bowl? We heard it's segregated. And Paul McCartney said, absolutely not. We're not going to do it. Wow very principled um, a stand, a position. Um, do you have a favorite photograph in uh, in the, in volume one from the 64 tour? Absolutely. I took two pages to present it. It's a gatefold photo and it's of them at, at, at Denver's Red Rocks on stage, all four of them. Um, I think they're probably singing the song, You Can't Do That, and right at the bridge, John always, like, really screams really loud, and you can just see the joy in the Beatles' faces, uh, all of them. I, I don't think touring in the later years was one of their favorite things to do. I think they would have preferred to stay in the studio and create these new sounds like they were doing with Rubber Soul or they were doing with Revolver. Um, you know, touring had become laborsome, troublesome, uh, security-wise. They couldn't perform their new music on stage because it was complex. No one could hear them, the rigors of touring, all of that. And I actually think Brian Epstein probably even kicked them out the door to do the 65 tour. But at the end of the 1964 tour, John Lennon says something very important. He says, we'll never do another tour like that again. And in fact, they never did. Um, you mean trying to squeeze so many dates and just. Yeah, that's where they did where they did 32 shows in 33 days. Um, many of the venues, they did two shows in one day. Um, and that's why volume two covers 1965 and 1966, because they did as many you know, not as many shows. They did half what they did in 64, half those shows when they came back in 65 and 66. Um, what about some of the, um, the, uh, the musical legends that, that came to see the Beatles on that 64 tour? Like, you know, where and when did Bob Dylan catch up with them first? So Bob Dylan, uh, there's I have a photo in the book of him at the uh, outside the Delmonico Hotel. The Beatles were playing two day two days in a row at the Forest Hills Tennis Stadium, the old stadium that's there uh, where the U.S. Open's being held now. And of course, the famous story of him smuggling in some marijuana for the Beatles to all enjoy. Uh, I don't think it was the first exposure the Beatles had to uh, mind altering substances. I think they were involved <laughs> with. Uh, 
things that kind of kept them up through the night in Hamburg and things like that. Uh, but yeah, they, you know, they met a few, obviously some celebrities along the way. I mean, Joan Baez was really a great fan of theirs. And John Lennon used to call her Miss Florence Nightingale because she would help the girls that had fainted near the stage. She would kind of, you know, coo them and, and uh, get them back into consciousness. So, yeah, I mean, I can just think of all, you know, listening to all the great music legends of today, you know, you hear them talk and they say, Oh, it's when I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan or when I saw them on tour. This is what inspired me to get a guitar, play the drums. This is what inspired me to write songs because the Beatles were a four-headed monster. They weren't like Elvis. It's just this one guy. It was four of them who could, you know, obviously two of them wrote prolifically. George later on, Ringo a few songs, Um, but they could do that and people saw that and said i can do that too i remember david crosby saying that like seeing them and saying i can do that too i can write my own songs and better yet i can have people scream for me (laughs) so you know when the birds came out and david crosby's on the birds you know he he got that you know he and he was great friends with the beatles there's pictures of of him in the book uh when they are in the L.A. area. They're usually stayed at a mansion up in the Hollywood Hills. And there's pictures of David Crosby and Joan Baez lounging around the pool with the Beatles, which were kind of interesting photos. They had never been published before. And I had found them and published them in the book and in color. They're they're very nice in color. Uh, When did the Beatles hook up with Elvis? But he was 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 that when he was in Vegas starting what in in the late 60s or was it on one of these tours? So the Beatles uh, actually met Elvis Presley on the 1965 tour. They were in L.A. Uh, they were going to perform two shows at the Hollywood Bowl on August 29th and 30th, but they had a show in San Diego on the 28th. So they had kind of that free day before that on the 27th of August. They went and visited Elvis in uh, in L.A. So he had a, his home there on Perugia Way, which is still there. You can go visit it. Uh, obviously a different tenant now, unless you still believe Elvis is alive. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they went over, had a very short meeting with them. Colonel Parker and manager Brian Epstein had met at the, I believe the uh, Hilton in LA where Brian was staying. And it was a very carefully orchestrated kind of meeting where they all went uh, over there. Uh, it was very kind of stiff. Um, not a lot is said about it. There's a few journalists there, obviously. And and I think Elvis even said at a point, like they're all kind of just staring at him because for the Beatles, I mean, this is a legend. This is why they're playing music, you know, and they're in his house. And Elvis said, if you guys don't want to like talk or just keep staring at me, like I'm going to get up and go to bed. Um, but Paul, I remember, was fascinated with Elvis's TV remote control. I mean, he was just like looking at this thing like, wow, you can like from your couch sit here and change channels. And of course, Elvis had one. And I remember Paul looking at that and saying, well, that's Elvis. <laughs> of course, he's going to have one of those, you know. Um, there's there is um Possibly some music was played and recorded. I know they've been looking for that. It just has not turned up yet. But yeah, there was maybe a bit of a jam session, uh, but mostly it was a kind of a stiff meeting. Um, 
is it, was it, um, I know McCartney has the stand-up bass. Was that Bill Black's bass? Yeah. So Bill Black was, uh, on the, um, the uh, opening acts for the 1964 tour, Bill Black was the original bass guitarist for Elvis. But unfortunately, and Bill really lobbied hard to be a support act on this tour. But Bill had come down with an illness. He had a brain tumor. And unfortunately, he could not uh, perform on that 1964 tour. So he was replaced by another bass guitarist. I believe his name was Reggie Young, who uh, replaced Bill on that. But today... Paul McCartney does own Bill Black's bass. It was a gift to him by uh, his uh, first wife, Linda. Yeah, it's, um, by all accounts, it's one of his prized possessions. Um, in talking with you earlier, and we were trying to discuss, you know, what what tour are we going to start with? Um, and um, you said, you know, let's do 64. That was their best. Even though, as you you know, it, it was kind of rushed and you know, cramming 33 uh, 31 dates into 33 days and so forth. What made the 64 tour better than the 65 or the 66? It was absolutely groundbreaking and kind of set the tone for the later multi-billion dollar concert touring industry. Today, we just take it for granted. Taylor Swift comes through town. She fills up stadiums. Once the Beatles kind of started this in 64, it kind of gave everyone the idea, especially promoters and people in the music business, that, hey, we can attract large amounts of people to these venues and make some money. And these bands can go into these venues and, and become more popular than they ever will, uh, ever, you know, can be. So when the Beatles came, like nothing like this assault on America had ever kind of taken place. They were inventing it as it went along uh, in terms of security, in terms of the you know sound, in terms of all these other things, the, the, the contract writers. And you know, each year they'd come back, you know, they'd add a couple more things to the contract writer. Finally, in the last door of 66, they issued a red security pass. And that only went to like Brian Epstein, a couple of journalists and the support acts. The Beatles obviously didn't have to carry that red pass around to get in and out. But the 64 tour, it 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 just set into motion this gigantic multi-billion dollar companies that are publicly traded that this could be a real thing where we can make a lot of money. And and the Beatles were the first to do it. How does one get their hands whoops, on this incredible two volume collection have some fun tonight so, some fun tonight so the best way to do it richard is to just go onto my website it's somefuntonight.com um you can order it directly from me and i'll actually sign the book for you um it does weigh a lot so anybody outside the us this book weighs over 13 pounds so it's the ex shipping is incredibly expensive in the us I cover that shipping and it's still a lot because transportation costs have gone up, but that's the best way to get it. If you want a personally signed book, I'll inscribe it to whoever. It's a great gift. Um, obviously all the usual sites, Amazon, blah, 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 but somefuntonight.com is the main site. Yeah. It's a must have for uh, serious Beatle fans and not so serious Beatle fans. Chuck, great uh, finally speaking with you and uh, let's do 65 next. Richard, I'd love to, and yes, let's do 1965. It's it's even a better year. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday.